Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 36 to verse 50. Please now hear the word of the Lord. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But she who is forgiven little, he is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Okay. Well, we are several weeks into this uh, series that I've titled What If? Uh, the idea of this series has been that our faith is a daily choice, a daily choice to choose what God has for us versus the many temptations and the many diversions that the world seeks to pull us away from a faithful walk with the Lord. And we have been through uh, five messages so far on, on this series. The, the image that we use is this idea of a path that has a big Y in it. 
We recognize in, in our path that we are either at this moment choosing to, to walk in our faith, to walk strengthening our faith, or we are making choices that lead us away from our faith or weaken our faith or even demonstrate that our faith is lacking altogether. We have gone through uh, the idea of facing the, the question of, of indifference, of facing the question of instant gratification versus delayed gratification. Uh, we have seen facing trials, whether we rely upon ourselves or whether we rely upon God's covenant loyalty. And last week, we looked at facing preservation, at the great danger that can come from living in this world as a person of faith and how easy it is to take the path of compromise as opposed to taking the path of courage. This week, we are going to the next why in the road. And in some ways, this why comes before all of the others. But it is the why of facing grace. Facing grace. Every single one of us has to face grace to be part of the body of Christ, to be a Christian. And we sing about grace. We sang some beautiful hymns. Uh, Amazing Grace, one of my favorites. We talk about grace. In this, in this fellowship, the word grace comes out all the time. It's, it's the currency of church. Grace is, is everywhere. It's, it's something that we are not shy to talk about. But grace is also offensive to who we are, to what we are. And we cannot really face grace until we have faced that offense and come to terms with it. I wanted to preach this particular story in this series because of how differently I have received it in my Christian walk. And so I share this story as a personal warning, something that I have learned about myself. See, I remember the first time I read this story, I, I read this story as a brand new Christian. The way that uh, I became a Christian was that I took up the Bible and I just started reading the Gospels. Uh, God's grace led me to do that, but that's, that's what I was doing. I wasn't in church. I wasn't in a, a, a small group or, or a Bible study. I just wanted to make sense of this story. And so I was reading the Gospels. I read through Matthew. And somewhere in the middle of Mark, my heart just broke open, and, uh, and, and my, my moment of conversion happened in a shower. I've shared that story before. And so Mark's short. There's only a couple more chapters, and then we're in the book of Luke. So I'm this fresh Christian reading a, a, at least one chapter in the New Testament every morning. And as this fresh Christian who has had his heart broken open by the message that Jesus died on the cross for me, I came to this story in Luke, and I had one of those Bible highlighters. I was like, yes. Yes, a thousand times, yes, this is what I'm feeling. And I took that highlighter, and I was highlighting every word until the paper wore out. This was my, this was my text. This, this described my heart. 
That was 15 years ago. And about six months or a year ago, I read this text again. And I read it as just another text. And something happened as I was reading that text that convicted me. And I think it is a, a warning for all of us. And I will share what that is later in this message. But let me just preface by saying that if we do not face grace every day, we will fall away from the joy of grace. And I'll explain how that works. When we face grace, we are facing a why in the road that on one side of the road is salvation. But to take that road requires a complete self-denial, a complete repudiation of your own worth and ability. And many of us can't take it. And that is why grace meets us. I've used the word of, of grace is the gatekeeper of the path of faith. There's many of us who can ape along the, 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 the path of religion, but we cannot join the path of faith because grace calls us to, to say something and believe something that our deepest heart refuses. This passage, my goal for it is to have it examine you. Have you really faced grace? And then also, to grow for you your awareness for needing God's grace. That is what we must receive if the path of faith is going to be walked by us. As we look at this passage, we are going to see that grace is the gatekeeper to the path of faith. And grace as a gatekeeper, I want you to think of, of grace, I know this is, uh, this is a bit... Um, maybe uh, callous, but he's like a bouncer. You know? <laughs> you know how the bouncer works. He has the people that come through, that are allowed through, and he's called a bouncer because the people that are not allowed through are literally bounced right out. Now, grace is not literally a bouncer, but when we come to grace, you are either experiencing the reception of God, or you are being repelled at, by it. Grace is the gatekeeper to the path of faith. Grace for some repels, and grace for others welcomes. And so the question that I want us to grapple with, the question I want you to wrestle with as we go through this passage is, who does grace repel, and who does grace receive? Which one Am I? We are going to see in this passage that grace repels the put together but receives the broken. We are going to see that grace repels the needless but receives the desperate. And we're going to see that grace repels the superior but receives the grateful. And so as we go through this passage, I, I ask that, that you take a moment to ask 
God to show me, am I the put together, the needless, and the superior person? Or am I the broken, the desperate, and the grateful? Let us pray right now for the Holy Spirit to work on us. Father, we face grace, but we do not want to face it in self-denial. We want to face it with you as the great physician, with you as the surgeon opening our heart. Father, show us whether we have truly received grace or whether deep down inside our heart has repelled it. Show us as we go through this passage which one we are. And we ask, Heavenly Father, your grace to make us the one who is broken and desperate and grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let us look at this first contrast. Grace repels the put together but receives the broken. If you have your scriptures in front of you, we are going to be in verses 36 to 39 as we go through this point. So in context, we have Jesus uh, who is in the early stages of his ministry. He's up in the area of Galilee. He's not yet quite the, the, uh, the threat that he becomes. The cross is still uh, a year or several years in the future. And people are, are coming to him, trying to make sense of him, trying to understand who he is. And there is this character in our story. His name is Simon. And he hosts Jesus in his house for a, a banquet. And also, as he is at this banquet, a woman uh, comes in to, to the, the, the eating area. And all we know is that this woman comes in uninvited. She's clearly not a part of the guest list, but she comes in. So we have Jesus, we have Simon, the host of this banquet, and we have this woman. These are the three main characters. And as we look at Simon and as we look at the woman, we are going to see in these characters what we need to grasp to understand what it means to face grace. Because these characters illustrate the two ways that are in front of us when we respond to grace. Let's look at Simon. Simon, we'll, we'll look at verse 36. We pick up some details. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, Simon, we, we learn here, he is, a, he is a Pharisee. And in the Scriptures, we know the word Pharisee is kind of the enemy in the Gospel. We we recognize Pharisee as hiss, boo, uh, don't be one. But the, the reality is the word Pharisee was a, a term for the most devout, the, the most religious, the most scrupulous, the ones who took their Bible the most serious. They were the evangelicals. They had their scriptures, and they wanted to make sure that they were submitted 
perfectly to every one of them. Now, they were, they were extra rigorous. We know that they, they uh, fell into legalism, but their legalism was driven by a heart of obedience. They wanted not to violate the commandment, thou shalt not, or, 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 or thou shalt keep the Sabbath, by making sure that nothing they did even came close to breaking the Sabbath. So they made rules upon rules upon rules to fence righteousness. Their whole understanding was, if I don't break the rule that leads up to the real rule, then I'm definitely not breaking the rules. I'm honoring God. This is what a Pharisee was, someone who was committed to the word of God as the way of righteousness. They were committed to living a life that they understood from the scriptures was pleasing to God, very religious. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus recognizes the Pharisees as a high watermark, a good example of righteousness. Also, we can learn about Simon. Simon is, is, is well off. He, he invites Jesus to his house. And his house, though we don't have any particular details about it, is a house that is uh, well off enough to host a banquet, to host a a, a large meal at a moment's notice. This represents means. He is well off. And as we look at the the situation, the kind of meal that Jesus is having is is is, is given away by the word reclined. The way that these, uh, this meal was set up was that there was a table that was low and people kind of sat on their hips with their legs out and leaned into the table front. And that particular setup is classic of what's called a, a symposium-style banquet. Uh, that, that is a prestigious meal with a guest of honor. And so G- this, this man Simon is hosting a prestigious meal with people of influence, that tells us that Simon is very influential. He's in a nice house. His house is the host of a, of a significant banquet. People came because he is influential. Simon is well regarded. He is put together. Look at Simon. That's, that's what we want our, 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 our kids to become. Very religious, well-off, influential, well-regarded. He's put together. Now, the woman, she, uh, she's different. She comes in uninvited. She comes in sneaking as quietly and meekly as possible into the back of this banquet-style room. She has not been invited. She is not one of the well-off or well-regarded. And you may ask the question, how did she get in this room? And and we don't have exact details, but uh, as as some um, scholars note, the way houses were set up, there was not quite a public-private divide. And so people from the streets would be able to enter houses without much difficulty. And that appears to be how this woman got into this place. But she is not put together. You could not use those words for this woman. She is nameless, but she is known. 
She is a woman of the city, a sinner. She is very easy to judge. She, she's one of those, you know she's trouble. And so she comes in. She's a, a woman who likely is a prostitute. She comes in with a bottle of perfume, and she lets her hair down, which was a very sexy thing, very scandalous thing. Women were to keep their hair a particular way. But she has her hair down, and she's kissing the feet of Jesus. She's applying this perfume, this, this ointment that serves her trade right there on his feet. Yeah, Simon can see what's going on. He can see very clearly what this is. And so in verse 39, we hear his thoughts. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Simon sees it. That's what this is. This woman defiles everything she touches. She has come in to this special banquet and she has become noxious to anybody who has any dignity at all. In fact, in Simon's reckoning, she is even bringing Jesus down because Jesus clearly is nobody special. He's clearly not holy. He's clearly not a prophet who knows things because anyone who is holy, who is a prophet, would know as much as I do and a whole lot more. Don't allow a prostitute to be massaging your feet. Right? So Jesus is being brought into this scandal according to... To Simon. That's the kind of woman she is. Everything that she uh, comes in contact with, she embarrasses, she defiles. Her sin makes her absolutely unfit to be in the presence of a man of God. She is broken. And she knows it. Because on top of all of this, there is the sound of her. Weeping. So we have Simon put together, and we have this woman who is a mess, who is broken, weeping on the floor. And our third character is Jesus. Jesus doesn't repel her. He receives her. He lets her wash his feet without offense. Right there. Grace receives the broken. Grace receives the broken. We see in this passage what we are told in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, what is true of Jesus. We are told that he is the one 
who will not break a bruised reed and who will not quench a smoldering wick. This woman is broken. She is a bruised reed. She is a smoldering wick. He does not come with his judgment to snuff her out or to further bruise her. He receives her. Now here's my question. How do you come to Jesus? Do you come to him put together? Or do you come to him broken? What is the difference between being put together and being broken? Uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss, who's now Nancy Lee DeMoss Wolgamuth, a um, uh, kind of a, a psychiatrist. I think you probably are familiar with her. She's on a lot of uh, Christian radio. She worked up a list of what defines proud, unbroken people versus broken people. And it's a very long list. I'm only going to look at four attributes. But again, as we have prayed, and as, and as I ask that your heart be open to hear and assess yourself by the Holy Spirit's guidance, I want us to listen to what are the attributes of a proud, unbroken person versus what is the attribute of a broken person. The unbroken person is concerned about what others think. The broken person, all that matters is what God knows. The unbroken person has a hard time saying, I was wrong." Will you please forgive me? The broken person is quick to admit failure and to seek forgiveness when necessary. The unbroken person compares themselves with others and feels deserving of honor. The broken person compares themselves to the holiness of God and feels desperate need for mercy. The unbroken person doesn't think they have anything to repent of. The broken person, a continual heart attitude of repentance. Again, I am not asking, did you have a conversion moment where you repented or a moment where you said, I was sorry. I'm saying, what is the character of your life? Do you check the boxes of unbroken? Or do you check the box? of broken? Are we put together or broken before Jesus? Here's why that matters. Jesus came for the broken, not the put together. Listen to this mission statement from Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, 12 and 13. He was in a, a, another meal with tax collectors and sinners, and a group of Pharisees came and said, what is this scandal? And Jesus says these words in response. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That is who Jesus says he came for. And we see in this passage that playing itself out. So grace repels the put together. 
but receives the broken. As we progress through this passage, we also see that grace repels the needless, but receives the desperate. And so Jesus speaks to Simon after he is finished judging this whole mess. He answers Simon's thoughts and says, I have something to say to you. Simon completely missing the fact <laughs> that he just got uh, proven a prophet in front of him, says, speak, teacher. And so Jesus gives this parable. Let's read it again. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. So this parable is very simple. It's, it's, it's almost self-explanatory, but that would ruin my job. So I will explain it a little bit. So there's this uh, two debtors. Uh, one owes 50 denarii, one owes 500 denarii. And the conversion of a denarii is basically, or denarius, is basically uh, one equals a day's pay. So we're looking at about two months pay debt, and we're looking at a year and a half uh, debt. The, the point of the parable is not so much about the uh, size of the debt as it is about the awareness of the greatness of the debt. Because the parable reveals that when they're both forgiven, the one who is forgiven more responds with greater love. And so it's the awareness of the debt that Jesus wants Simon to reckon with. The one who recognizes he had a great debt, 500 denarii forgiven, responds with greater love in that, to that act of forgiveness. Now the reason Jesus tells this parable is simple. This explains the woman's actions. Her debt was huge. Nobody can hide the fact that she was a sinner of quite high uh, of, of great ill repute. Her debt was huge. She is a desperate woman. And her actions that we see at the beginning of this passage is her response. She has experienced great mercy from God. She has come recognizing that her debt in this person, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, she has been forgiven. And so she comes showing great love because she has received great mercy. The 500 denarii or even more is forgiven. And this is what we mean at this church when we talk about Lilo, our mission statement, live in and live out the good news of Jesus. You see, she lives in the knowledge that she has been forgiven. A great debt, a woman of the city, a sinner, has been forgiven by God. She lives in that truth. And how do we know she lives in that truth? She lives out great love to Jesus. She is now compelled by the fact that a great debt has been relieved of her, and now she uses her freedom to love greatly the one who forgave. Now, I want us to look at Simon. 
Simon doesn't identify with this parable at all. Simon is not in the parable. How do I know that? Look at verse 43. How does he respond when he's asked to give the interpretation? He says, the one, I suppose, who was forgiven the larger debt. That word, I suppose, in there is obnoxious. It's like, I don't know, Jesus, the one that had the larger debt. Why, why is he so nonchalant about a message of forgiveness? Where does he check out? Where does he, 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 he remove himself from this teaching of Jesus? I'll, I'll show you exactly where. Verse 42. Verse 42, Jesus says, When they, these two debtors in the parable, could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. That's where Simon checks out. Because he knows he can pay his debt. Because he's got a little one. He's scrupulous. He's righteous. His life has been ordered so that he can pay his debts. He's not saying he is sinless, but he's not a big sinner, and he keeps his account short. And so he is not the one that loves less. Okay? The parable says the one that's forgiven the smaller debt loves less. He's there saying, I don't have any debt that needs forgiven. He, by definition, is loveless. That is where Simon is. Now, the irony here is that Simon is the one in the story who needs forgiveness most. He's the only one that's actively sinning. How so? What's he do with this woman who's in desperate need? He doesn't love his neighbor. He judges his neighbor. As we'll see going forward, what does he do when he has a guest of honor? Does he show hospitality that is, that is loving a guest? No, he does none of that. How big of a sinner is he? I mean, this is audacious. He is there judging Jesus, this man's clearly not special. I'm more special than he is. I would know what's going on here. He is in the middle of judging the Son of God. (laughs) That's staggering. And yet he is completely oblivious to his sinfulness. His needlessness cuts him off from the grace he needs. He is not even listening. Oh, beloved, we must grasp that we are all great sinners with debt that we cannot pay. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ came to die on a cross because every single person in this world needs the cross to pay for their debt to God. If there was no cross, there would be no hope for anyone. It doesn't matter how few the sins are that you are aware of. It was big enough that God said, to save you, I put my son on the cross to gurgle and die because there was wrath on your head if he didn't take it for you. This is what Paul 
recognizes. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says in his own expression, this is about him, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For Paul. Paul says, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, I'm not saved. Jesus died on the cross for me. And I'll tell you something. If the Apostle Paul and Simon the Pharisee were in the same room, Simon would look up to Paul as more righteous. And that one needed the cross to be saved. And so Paul writes and towards the end of his life to his, his disciple Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What does he mean there? How is, how is Paul the foremost sinner? I mean, there are some, there are some big sinners out there. We, we can list some people that have clearly been bigger sinners than Paul. Has a lot longer list. That's not how Paul sees sinfulness. He doesn't see it by comparing. You see, Paul calls himself the chief sinner because he is the closest to the cross. He recognizes he is the foremost sinner because he stares at the cross and he sees how great his sin is. It took the cross. And so Jesus tells us this is, this is entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have to recognize when you face grace, your poverty, that you are a beggar, that you deserve nothing, that you can claim nothing, that all you have is God's judgment on your sin unless you come to him poor in spirit, which is to say with a heart of repentance. Beloved, confess your great sinfulness to God. You cannot come to God as Simon does with a short account, with, a, with a, a lack of a need or an awareness of forgiveness. Confess your great sinfulness to God and you will receive God's mercy, which is far greater. Grace repels the needless but receives the desperate. And finally we see grace repels the superior but receives the grateful. And so this passage, after the parable has been given, Jesus breaks it down for Simon. Jesus concludes the matter of this banquet by, by establishing two things. In verses 44 to 46, he interprets the whole scene for Simon so he can understand what really happened. And second, in verses 47 to 50, in front of all of this room of judges, 
He justifies the one. Let us look at the first part. Jesus turns and says, do you see this woman? And speaking to Simon, he lays out what a bad host Simon has been. You were supposed to bring water to wash my feet. You didn't do that. This woman used her own tears to wash my feet. You receive a guest in our culture with, a, with the, 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 the kiss of friendship. You wouldn't even kiss me on the cheek as is custom. And this woman is kissing my feet. You didn't give me any oil to moisten my head that has been out in this desert air, which is custom. This woman took her, her ointment and she has been working it into my feet. Simon, you didn't receive me with any sort of love. You didn't show your guest any love, but she has loved me exceedingly. You judge this woman, but the woman has acted righteously. You have not. And so Jesus justifies this woman in front of everyone. She says, this, he says, this woman loves much because she has been forgiven much. Therefore, everyone here at this banquet, her debt is gone. She has God's peace on her. And here is the great irony. This is where the image of the path comes to us. The woman who is the sinner who seems the most disqualified to be in the presence of Jesus is walking with God. And Simon, who is the most religious, the most well-regarded, the most established, the one that seems most scrupulous and most pleasing to God, is nowhere close. You see, Simon is being bounced. And the woman is being received. Because the woman comes needing grace and the man refuses to accept it. That describes him. Why didn't Simon treat Jesus as the person of highest honor? I've been puzzling over that. Why didn't Simon treat Jesus as the person of highest honor at this banquet? There's only one satisfying answer. That spot was already taken. The person of highest honor can't be Jesus because it's already Simon. What is Simon doing in this passage? Simon is comparing himself constantly and placing himself in relationship to everybody he sees. It's not hard to look at the woman and know exactly where he stands. I sit at the banquet table, unlike this woman, a sinner. But Jesus, I'm going to have Jesus over. We're going to get to know each other. I'm going to hear him out. I'm going to talk, talk to him and kind of get the, the cut of his jib, figure out where he belongs. Well, clearly, he's a nobody because he fraternizes with prostitutes. I'm superior. His narrative is to compare and justify that he is above and better, better than the woman even better than Jesus. And this is where 
I come back to my introduction where we need to talk about why I'm so motivated to share this passage. Because I think there is need for self-examination. I think there's a lot of stuff I've said here that Simon, if he were in the room, would not feel relevant to him. Wouldn't consider. And so what I want us to do right now is what I, I guess I call a visualization exercise. I want everyone here to close their eyes. Close your eyes and imagine this room that we have been in through this passage. Imagine the banquet. See the table. See all the great food. See all the guests. Put yourself in this room. Now, look at Simon as he discusses the meaning of the parable. Now look at Jesus as he explains the meaning. Now look at the woman at Jesus' feet. My question when you look at the woman, did you look down to see her? That's where I discovered that I had moved away from grace. Because when I put myself in this room to see the woman I look down. Which means, where did I put myself? I put myself at the table. I put myself as a peer. I was eye level with Jesus. And the question is, why don't I see myself with the woman? When I was saved, that's, that was me. I would be that woman. Just give me the tears, Jesus. They would come so easily. And now, 15 years in, I'm sitting at the symposium talking about grace. Not living in it. What about you? I'm not here to judge. But what about you? We sing amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Is that our heart? Are we a saved wretch? How do you view Jesus in your heart? Is he the teacher? Is he your co-pilot? Is he your guest? 
Or is he the one whose feet I want to kiss? Whose love gives me tears? Is he the one you cry out, my Savior, my Lord? Grace reveals us. We either show we need it by living with gratefulness or we show we are too good for it. Grace repels the superior but receives the grateful. So grace is what we face. It repels the put together. It repels the needless, it repels the superior, but it receives the broken, it receives the desperate, it receives the graceful, the, 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 the grateful. Beloved, are you on the way of faith? Can Jesus look at you and say, you love much because you've been forgiven? His grace is offered to you. Jesus gives us these words. I pulled the wrong ones just a second ago. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, and I will give you rest. God's grace in Jesus is offered to every sinner and wretch in this room. Have you come to him and faced what grace calls you to face? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.